You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this event from the archive as Lee Child and Andrew Grant join together in conversation with NJ Cooper at 2009's Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Enjoy. It is my very great pleasure this evening to interview our most extremely special guest, <laughs> Lee Child. He was born in Coventry in 1954. He won a scholarship to the school that educated J.R.R. Tolkien. He read law at Sheffield University, worked in commercial television for nearly 20 years, and is now oh, yeah. the best-selling thriller writer. One statistic I discovered when doing my research is that Somewhere in the world, a Lee Child novel is sold every second. That is amazing. (laughs) Now, Lee, you've often told the story about how you were more or less booted from Granada Television during some restructuring. You bought a pencil and a notebook and wrote a bestseller. Just like that. It's never really as easy as that. Uh, well, it, was, it wasn't more or less booted. I was booted. Um, <laughs> so to go back to those unhappy events of um, 90, middle 1990s, it was, um, I was very happy at Granada. I had a great job. I loved it very much. And uh, for 16 of those years, it was uh, terrific. I just had a ball every single day. And then it was uh, in the middle 90s, ITV was reorganized. The, um, a new management came in, and uh, their plan was to increase profits by reducing costs. And suddenly, instead of being an asset, I was a cost. Um, and in order to do that, they first of all needed to, to neutralize the union. And they did that by saying that whoever replaced the shop steward at the end of his term would be fired within a week and never work again in the industry. So, of course, nobody ran for election for shop steward. And I, I saw this blank sheet of paper. The nominating paper was on the notice board blank. And I was overcome with one of my all-too-frequent real-life reacher moments. And I thought, uh, you know, that's not good. And so I put my name on the, uh, on the nominating sheet. And a manager actually came to see me and said... Uh, we mean what we say. You'll be fired in a week and you'll never work in the industry again. So I looked at him and thought, a week? We'll see. (laughs) You think, asshole? (laughs) And uh, that week turned into actually 117 weeks, which is two years and three months before they fired me. And it was a terrific, it was a terrific period full of the most dirty, vicious, underhanded fighting that you could imagine. I loved every second of it. <laughs> but they did get rid of me eventually, and, um, and I did not work in the industry again. So at that time, I was 39 years old, which was sadly too young to retire, uh, too old, really, to feel like starting at the bottom of another job. So I thought, what can I do? Um, and I thought, I- I'll write a book. I've read some. How hard can it be? <laughs> um, and it felt, it was, you know, it felt easy. And I think that when you look back on it, 
it's, it was a time of life where there was no alternative. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't fail, I couldn't afford to fail. And I was so fueled up with uh, fury and rage and aggression that it just, uh, it just blasted through all the potential problems and it worked um, very happily. It, it kind of transferred the difficulties actually to subsequent books. The first book was easy to do and then the real slog started after that. And what kind of difficulties did you face? Um, well, with a lot of things in life, I, I've always in, really enjoyed doing them but had no real uh, urge to repeat them. You know, like I've got one kid and I've really... <laughs> 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 I, and I, I love her to death, and I really, really in, have enjoyed having her, but I didn't want two kids. And, uh, and so it was a bit like that with books, in a way. Um, I, was, I really enjoyed writing one, and I had this fantasy that it would you know, sell in huge numbers and be a movie, and then I would never have to work again. Um, and sadly, that, you know, it worked very well, but not quite to that level, so I had to write another one. And uh, you know, the second book is, is more difficult than the first book, usually. And then the third book was my best in terms of process because I, I felt like I had learned the trade with the first two. And with the third one, I was still full of energy and I, I, I was dumb enough to not worry about stuff that I would worry about now. I just went ahead and did what I wanted to do. And then the, the long slog, like a book itself in microcosm, you know, the middle part of the career, like the middle part of a book, is the long slog. The saggy bit, the potentially yeah. saggy bit. I call it Death Valley. <laughs> so Reacher came out of rage and fighting and not wanting to repeat things. He's obviously quite like you, as well as being tall enough to reach tins of supermarket <laughs> shelves. Yeah, you know, my stock answer to that is Reacher is, is entirely autobiographical. Mm. Um, <laughs> Certainly in terms of the mental processes and, and, you know, the observance and the logic and all that kind of stuff. The physical side, for the books, I tone it down a bit to make it plausible. <laughs> <laughs> and so you, like Reacher, perhaps hate authority being visited on you by other people, but are quite good at exercising authority over other people. Absolutely, which makes me a terrible hypocrite, but um, well, I've, I, I do, I just get in a rage. I mean, I've been in an absolute rage ever since I got to this hotel because there was a notice at the door saying you may not bring in outside food and drink, and if you do, it will be confiscated. So I'm like, you think? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's only got to tell you not to do yeah, something exactly. and you want so to I've do it. So I've been running in and out of this hotel probably a hundred times carrying contraband food. <laughs> <laughs> Just waiting to have the fight. <laughs> he also, Reacher, this is, so perhaps you too, strikes me as being rather like Lee Marvin's character in Paint Your Wagon. You know, I never see a sight that didn't look better looking back. Uh -huh. Is that you? Uh, not to the extent that Reacher is. I mean, in that mm. sense, Reacher's a metaphor for... Um, and it was a structural decision with the series because, you know, don't forget, I was out of work, I was broke, and this was not so much a... A hobby thing. It was. It was life. You know. Mm. I, it was an absolute uh, crucial thing that I made a living from this. So I, I made decisions early on about how the series ought to be. And one of the things that I, I decided was well, two things really that pointed in the same direction. One was that if you can see a bandwagon, it's too late to get on. And there were a number of series starting up around that time 
that featured Michael Connolly in particular. Um, Michael Connolly had started out just a few years before me, and I'd read his first cut two or three books. And I knew that he was going to be a star. Uh, and I'm, I was happy to make that judgment. You know, that judgment turned out to be correct. I knew he would be big. And so I thought, I'm not going to do what he's doing. Um, and what he was doing is he had a location-based series and an employment-based series. Mm -hmm. In other words, the traditional soap opera. And he had a guy with a, with a fancy first name, Hieronymus. Mm -hmm. So I thought, all right, well, Reacher is not going to be employed anywhere, he's not going to live anywhere, and he's not going to have a complicated first name. It was really that simple, you know, mm. do it differently. And as far as the wandering thing went, it, that was to serve that, that purpose, but also to make this, the series very, very flexible. Because, you know, I've got 13 books out now, and I've actually written next year, so that's 14. And so that's 14 page ones. And it just struck me that with a location-based, employment-based series, each page one would be virtually the same, wouldn't it? Mm. You know, if he's a police lieutenant somewhere, how can the story start other than he's in bed or he's listening to his jazz and the phone rings and it's the police captain and there's a body out on Mulholland Drive. Um, and I didn't want to do the same thing 14 times mm. in a row. Mm. So I figured with, the, with no place and no job, it can start anywhere, anyhow. Um, and I saw that as a future benefit which has turned out to be, because perhaps the reason why the series has lasted so long is that it is, it's infinitely flexible, not only in terms of geographic scope, but in terms of what you might call the pitch. You know, the stories can be sometimes all glossy, involved with the White House and the FBI, sometimes just with dusty, no-account towns in the middle of nowhere. It can be anything at all. Hope and despair. Are yeah. they real times? Actually, then, th there's plenty of places called hope and despair in the mm. U.S., but, but not, not, not particularly those two right. together. But I'm fascinated by American town names. There's truth and consequences in, mm. in New Mexico. It, there's a place in Philadelphia and another one in Kansas called Intercourse. <laughs> and you know, I suppose you grew up there, you know. Yes. I suppose you went to school there. Ever after you're applying for a job, you know, where it says education, you have to put intercourse high. <laughs> <laughs> Which is perhaps the moment to say that I can't help feeling that Reacher is a terrible loss to um, the world of settled relationships. He's devastatingly attractive. He is so sensitively empathetic that he can understand precisely how somebody else is feeling he would be the ideal husband. I think you're being a bit cruel to have him moving on from every relationship in five minutes. Well, it's, um, you know, that's a common misperception that he moves on. I think sometimes he would like to stay. Uh, but he never does. He never does because the catch-22 is he's attracted to intelligent women. And intelligent women understand that it can't possibly work uh, with a guy like that. And intelligent women understand actually that it's better that it doesn't. It becomes the perfect affair, effectively. Because, you know, I'm not making any confessions on my own part, nor impugning any member of the audience, but I think we all, you know, we're horny from time to time. And we're promiscuous, and we, would, we wouldn't mind having an affair with somebody. But what stops us from doing it is the reality of what happens. You know, we get found out, and um, there's all kinds of trouble and hassle. You know, you get divorced, you lose your house, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but suppose that you were a woman and you could be guaranteed 48 hours of intense fun and then after that the guy would never call, never write, never show up again. 
it's complete safety. Never leave, never leave his socks on your bathroom floor. Exactly, probably because he hasn't got any socks. <laughs> it seems to me reading several, rereading several of the books in a row just recently that they are above all else about loss. He has this tremendous loss that the high peak of his life was when he was in the army. And nothing else is ever going to touch that. And then he recreates loss every single time by leaving. And I wondered whether this just happened, was just coincidence, or was something you meant to do? I'm not certain that I really analyze that loss thing. Uh, to me, they seem much more um, about revenge than loss. But the loss is absolutely there, and I think that is probably um, written from life, not necessarily mine, but um, a certain military generation mm. that, for instance, my father represents. He was, um, you know, like everybody else's father of my age, he was in World War II, and um, he volunteered. He was Irish, not subject to the draft volunteered, trained for a year, and then served for a year from the invasion of Normandy to VE Day. And during that year of combat, he turned 21. Uh, actually, just after VE Day, he turned 21. So he was 20 years old during that year of combat. And he was a perfectly average soldier, frankly. I mean, won no medals. He was not involved in any heroic actions. But still, indisputably, the highlight, the high point of his life was over before he was 21. And he was facing the rest of his life knowing that everything else would be an anticlimax. And I think that was a big deal for that generation, that they, um, uh, however much they'd actually hated the combat, they knew that then the rest of their life was going to be some, something of a disappointment. And I think that whole generation, in that sense, managed loss in that way. Mm. Um, and for career military especially, they have, on top of that, they have the dislocation. Because it's very hard to come out of a lifetime in the military into civilian society. It's completely different. It's like a different planet. And um, so not only the sense of loss, but the dislocation. Um, but I, I didn't really pay too much attention to that. What I, I see the series is, is more of a, a series of revenge stories. Something happens either to Reacher or somebody else, and he then hunts down the perpetrator. And puts it right. Puts it right. But yeah. it's not just Reacher. I was thinking of the woman in the Hope and Despair novel. I'm terribly bad at titles, remembering the titles. Mm -hmm. She undergoes the most appalling loss, which continues. I don't want to give too much away, but in her, in her private life, she's faced with it every single day. Yeah, that book's called Nothing to Lose. That's right. Yeah, and that woman is, um, she's absolutely trapped in a limbo of mm -hmm. a, a loss, <coughs> a loss but not quite a loss. And, uh, you know, that's an awful situation for her to be in. And um, that is very poignant. It caused me an awful lot of trouble in the U.S., that book. And, oh, why? Well, because it is, it is in a, you know, in a minor key throughout that book, it's... Um, anti-Iraq, anti-US involvement in Iraq, and especially anti the treatment of the returning wounded. And uh, there's a certain sort of 28% of, of the US population that doesn't want to hear that. Mm. And you know, for some bizarre reason, they're probably over-represented in my readership. And so they, <coughs> they felt actually betrayed by Reacher taking that stance. By the truth. Yeah, they felt intensely hostile about being told the truth and uh, reacted in ways that were, you know, just furious and very unpleasant 
you know, not that I, I didn't relish the, well, the problem is I couldn't have the fight mm. because they, they did it all in cyberspace or by mail. And um, I taunted them on my, on my blog. I said, you know, come and, come and talk about it at an event. Come to the event, we'll talk about it outside afterward. Yeah. But they never showed up. And did they get personal in their insults, or did they just express Yeah, they rage? got pretty personal. I mean, at one point, uh, my US publisher, unlike my UK publisher, mm. doesn't open the mail. Uh, they just ah. send it on directly. And, um, you know, many of them... There were some very creative personal insults, one of which was a, uh, a bitter metropolitan atheist. <laughs> I think that's rather a compliment. Yeah, me too. I was very happy with that. I printed that one out. Oh, brilliant. And uh, others would, these padded envelopes would come with torn up pages from the book. One, one day it arrived with uh, pages torn out and used as toilet paper, mm. which, uh, you know, I wasn't pleased about, but what can you do? Chuck it in the bin. Yeah. Scrub your hand. Yeah. There are a lot of facts in your books, as, I mean, as well as that kind, and they all come across absolutely credible. I wondered whether they are all as real as they seem. Do you do a lot of fact-checking? Um, not really. I don't do any fact-checking, but what I have a, this kind of mind that just is, is a, a lint trap for, for trivial knowledge. Mm. Um, you know, I know nothing serious whatsoever, but I know lots of trivial facts. And um, you pick them up as you go along. Mm. I mean, just before this, we were in the green room talking about, you know, how you can read something and some particular little thing will stick in your mind. And it might lie there for years, but you'll use it eventually in a book. So uh, I think most of the facts are true. I rarely make up, yeah. you know, a blatantly false fact. Uh, and I was very, very interested in the new one, um, the stuff about the Americans in Afghanistan in the 80s, covert Americans. That is presumably all true. Well, as far as I know, yeah. I mean, they're, they're not keen on admitting it, but I think it has to be true because of uh, external evidence, yeah. That's what I wondered, whether you, you work backwards from the known facts, like Reacher, or whether you, you find a piece of research and then write the book about that. No, I work back, backwards mm. from, the, from the result, which, yes, which yes. implies certain things must have happened. It, it's not possible for it to have happened in another way. And I did wonder whether you ever get into, I don't mean official trouble, but whether the authorities get cross when you write that sort of thing. I don't mean mad, mad readers, but... I don't think so. I mean, it's, I think it's a bit vainglorious of thriller writers to imagine mm. they're being monitored by the CIA. Um, <laughs> you know, I really don't... I don't think that that happens and uh, you know fiction is such a big thing there are so mm. many of us and it's such a big market that every single opinion will be voiced sooner or later so if something is the truth it will inevitably be hidden by the noise and um, there was a space after 9-11 where um, CIA and FBI contacted thriller writers and screenwriters to come up with our fantasy plots in order that you know if we would reveal something some vulnerability it could be it could be looked at um, and I was contacted twice first of all by the CIA then the FBI which didn't encourage me about their newfound coordination um, and and did you cooperate or did you yeah I mean I there was there, there is and it's actually in Gone Tomorrow actually a reference to the to the potential for an attack in Washington DC 
And you know, I felt I had to come up with mm. with a scenario to be taken seriously as a thriller writer. So, <laughs> I, so I told him my idea, and and nothing was done about it because, frankly, it would be too difficult to do something about it. And I found that very interesting. It's easy enough to organise security at the airport, so we do it. It's mm -hmm. it would be impossible to organise the same type of security for the subway or the regular train. So we don't do it. So the situations where we don't do something simply because it's too hard not mm. because it's not necessary. Mm. And they haven't been following you since? No, I think that, uh, again, you know, that it always makes me laugh, this business, because not so much um, crime fiction, but what mm. you would call thriller fiction or espionage fiction, there are dozens of authors with these elaborate fantasies about how they've got top secret clearance and that mm. they have access to mm -hmm. the top level in the Marine Corps or the or the CIA, and, and somehow they are, I mean, literally bizarre, they're deluded, some authors. Um, you know, I, I won't mention any names, but there was one author who, um, who writes a popular espionage series about a, a guy called Mitch Rapp. So actually, I'm talking about Vince Flynn. He was, um, <laughs> he was very occasionally, if there is um, a senior politician who is from your state, they do a courtesy thing where they'll invite you to Congress or the White House or something. Mm. Just, just as, you know, politicians' work is at least 50% ceremonial. And so they'll invite you down there. And, and Vince thought he was literally being invited to give advice. And he prepared a briefing paper. And, uh, you know, that kind of behavior is completely delusional. They, they do not ask novelists how to save the world. There's a lot of fear in your books, which is obviously necessary for the tension. You don't seem to me to be a man who is easily scared. Is there anything that frightens you? Um, <clears throat> you know, not kind of confrontational things, because where I grew up, we had a... You know how it is now with stranger danger and all that kind of thing. We, we had a thing when we were kids that I'm not scared of strangers. Strangers are scared of me. <laughs> That's what you had to make yourself believe. Mm. And uh, so that kind of thing doesn't bother me at all. I'm physically afraid of um, claustrophobia, extreme claustrophobia. Mm. Not being in an elevator or a small room, but you know, being in a, um, a space that's too tight to turn around. And so I use that in a couple of the books yes. where you know, Rich is trapped in a, in a tiny rock seam or something like that, because that really does terrify me. And you never have been, have no, you? No, I never have. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go anywhere near it. <laughs> So, no other sort of nightmares that... Um, not really. I mean, you know, it's, uh, there's a tendency to feel a little afraid in a Kafka-esque way about bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I've got, I've got all the advantages, basically. I'm a white, middle-class male, and, you know, really there's nothing to be afraid of. Mm. I was interested that you studied, you chose to study law at university, even though you, you've said that you never intended to practice. What made you pick law in that case? Um, well, ultimately, it was, a, it was a, just a total accident. Right. Um, because I was, uh, I went to university in, the, in 1973, and I did A-levels, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, but 1973, for me, the age of Aquarius had dawned in a huge way several years earlier. And so I think I'd done these A-levels and then basically forgotten about them. And our uh, school sent us a postcard with the A-level results. And that came through in August, I think, late August. I think I'd been in, um, in, on vacation, France and Switzerland, then got home to find this postcard. 
And I thought, oh yeah, I did A-levels. And the results were reasonable. And I thought, maybe I could go to university with these. And, and by that point, it, it was very, very late. So I, I rushed to the Central Library in Birmingham and um, looked at their university prospectuses. And there was one with a, a picture of a, a very nice theater, their student theater. Uh, and I thought, oh, I, I, maybe I'll go there. And that was Sheffield University. Mm. So I called Sheffield and said, uh, I know I'm late, but I'm, I wonder if you have any vacancies. And they said, well, what do you want to study? And I said, well, what have you got vacancies for? <laughs> and they said, well, we have a, a place doing law. And mm. I said, yeah, I can do that. And so that's how, why I went. Oh, right. I was having all these fantasies about a passion for justice, which is what <laughs> led, led to Reacher. Um, and I wonder, I mean, having, having a, a legal background, whether you think there are differences in the law and the way it operates between the states and here. I mean, as a man who lived here and now lives there, do you mm -hmm. notice big differences? Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, this is, there are huge differences. Although the two legal systems, are, you know, the American system is fundamentally based on, on English common law, um, there are huge differences in the balance because what happens in America is that um, the government has no power at all other than what the citizens choose to give it. Mm. And in Britain, this, the, there are no citizens. There are subjects of the crown, and they have no powers at all other than what the crown chooses to give them. Mm. So fundamentally, at, at the bottom, it's a completely reverse situation. In practice, of course, it's not really very different. Um, the American system is uh, constitutional, and so there's an absolute check. If, some, if, if there's a law passed, it's not a question of debate, is it good or bad? If it's not constitutional, it cannot stand. And do you think a character like Reacher would work in a book set in England? I mean, apart from the fact that the distances are so much smaller, do you think this, this kind of enforcer of true justice, the revenge, would work in, in England? I don't think at the moment, because I think the thing about Reacher really is that he's an ancient character, uh, a character from myth and legend that really depends on a frontier feel. Mm. And, uh, and that's not to say such characters have not existed in Europe, but they existed long ago, five, six hundred years ago, when Europe was a frontier continent. And, um, and presumably before that in Scandinavian myth and before that in Anglo-Saxon myth, probably stretching all the way back through the ancient Greeks, that where there's a sort of empty, lawless situation, you actually need a figure like this. And because we need it, we invent it in fiction. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. 600 years ago in Europe, th these figures were incredibly popular. There were there are dozens of stories about them. But then as Europe got more settled and civilized and crucially populated and explored and settled and it was all a done deal, then there's no space for these figures anymore. So they had to migrate to where there still was a frontier. Mm. And you saw them a hundred and odd years ago in the westerns in America. And, um, and, you know, America, apart from the coasts, America is really still a very empty wilderness. And so they can exist there. And was it that emptiness, that frontierness, that made you move to America, or was it the smallness of England? Um, the reason why I moved to America, well, I moved to New York, which is not oh, really the same thing. Oh, that's not exactly thing. America. Yeah, not yes, the, yes, exactly yes. the same thing as America. And I moved there simply because it was a lifelong dream and ambition. When I was a little kid, I had a mm. book, a picture book um, of New York. 
And one of the pages was, it, they were paintings, you know, remember those, that style of painting in the 50s, very hyper-realistic mm -hmm. with the apple-cheeked children. Mm -hmm. One of the paintings was from inside an apartment, this apple-cheeked little boy sitting on the windowsill looking out at the city below. And I just felt I was that boy and right. that I had to get there. And it took me a long time, but I did get there. Your place was there. Mm. Which brings me to family. You have, I think, two scientist brothers. Do you go to them for information for the books, for research for the books? No, I don't, um, because one of them, I mean, both of them really would, you know, they wouldn't understand what I was asking, and they'd start rambling on in this huge, long fashion, I'd be asleep after five minutes. <laughs> and so, because um, actually I did have an idea, I wasn't seriously going to write it, but I was just interested in it. Um, you know, one of these future shock mm -hmm. stories. If, mm -hmm. if the human population suddenly disappeared, all apart from a couple of people, how would they live? And I knew stuff like, you know, canned food lasts pretty much indefinitely, but I was interested in how long would petrol still work? Mm. You know, it's stuck in a petrol tank underground. Not evaporating. Yeah, you know, what would happen? Does it mm. break down? Does it go off? You know, so I asked one of my brothers that, and I'm still waiting for the answer, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and how do they take what you've done and where you've moved and you're selling a book every second? Um, <clears throat> I think that in, in a quiet sort of way, the other two brothers are, um, you know, a little bit proud of it, supportive mm -hmm. of it. They certainly buy the book, <clears throat> and if I ever see them, they ask me to sign it. Oh, right. That, that's, um, that's, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Uh, my parents are kind of, uh, you know, they're so repressed, my parents. They, when I started in television all those years ago, they didn't approve of that, and they're still waiting for me to get a proper job. <laughs> And they're very passive-aggressive about the whole thing. Because, you know, in every country in, in, of the world, the bestseller list is broken up between uh, hardcover mm -hmm. and paperback. And each section is broken up um, fiction and non-fiction. So there's essentially four lists. And so when the new hardcover comes out, obviously one likes to be number one on the mm -hmm. hardcover fiction list, which happily um, I have been the last few years. But of all, all the lists in Britain, there's one which is the Times on a Saturday right. that is an integrated list. Uh, and in, in the US, the equivalent would be USA Today, mm. which is the integrated list. So every book fights it out with every other book. So that you've got you know, the celebrity cookbooks and all this kind of stuff and the mass market paperbacks and the hardcovers all thrown into one. So that if I'm number one um, with the new book, I might be number five, say, mm. on the integrated list. So they, that's the, one, the only one they look at. <laughs> and they, they phone me up and say, oh, well done, you're number five. Families. Yeah. But we have, we have a treat for you because we have another brother of Lee here, Andrew Grant, who has written his own terrific novel, and Andrew is going to join us. <clears throat> And having siblings myself, an older sibling, I wondered whether, Andrew, when you, when you began, you thought, shall I do something completely different? And you obviously decided not. Yeah, it was, it's a very difficult um, strategic decision to make because one thing that I was clear about was that, I, uh, like Lee, I wanted it to be my career. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so it had to be something that I could do year in, year out for 15, 20 years, not something that you do once and, and hope to get away with. And I felt that if I tried to, in a similar way to the, the comment about the bandwagon, if I tried to bend something out of shape to make it different to something else, then what am I going to do next year? You know, that's, that's mm-hmm. not something that comes naturally to me. That's not something that I would be able to sustain. So in the end, I decided to forget about what the book may or may not be like and just decide on, um, I looked at, I love reading crime fiction. Um, I've done that for years. So I thought, what do I like? Let's put lots of that in the book. What do I not like? Let's not have any of that. And just, just really, um, it sounds horrible, I know, but just really forget about everybody else and just do what I want to do. And how was it, Lee, finding your, your baby brother coming into the same territory? Um, well, I was really happy about it. I mean, because we, we, we're not in a usual brother situation, or mm-hmm. because you, you probably can't tell this visually by looking, but um, <laughs> Andrew is 14 years younger than me. <laughs> Therefore, you know, by the time he was basically out of his pram, I'd left home. And so we never lived together as brothers. We were never in a family situation together. Um, so there was none of that normal kind of rivalry and argy-bargy or anything like that. I left home, went to university, never really went home again, and um, didn't really meet him until he was about 14. He, mm. came, uh, he came to stay at my house when he was 14 for a couple of weeks because... Uh, I think he was fed up with the same things that I'd been fed up of at home. and The very repressed parents. Yeah, the parents. And, <laughs> and so he shows up at age 14, and that's the first I saw of him, and it was more like a friend than a relative. That's how it's turned out to be. And, of course, with writing, it's, um, the, the analogy that I used in a, in a previous interview was, was sports. You know, if... There's the Neville brothers play for Manchester United, mm-hmm. what they did, and the Charlton brothers played for England, remember that? And, you know, was, I don't think one brother was hostile about the other brother being on the team, but that was even worse than this situation because with a football team, it's 11 people. So potentially if somebody else gets on the team, somebody gets dropped because of it. And as you know, writing is absolutely not like that. There's room for everybody. It's infinitely expandable. Just because his book works doesn't mean my book has to fail. And therefore, there's no reason to feel uptight about it. And, um, you know, yeah, so I was just really happy about it. And I, I hope it works. And it's up to you guys to make it work. (laughs) Ideal brothers. Andrew, reading, reading your book, I, um, I came upon your villain, mm-hmm. and I don't want to give too much away, but she has a particular way with members of her staff who disappoint her. Um, were you thinking of the very worst thing that could possibly happen to you, or was this some other motive yeah. behind this? Well, it was, it's interesting how that emerged. I mean, that, that, if anybody's read it, you'll know the scene in question, and that's, that's the scene that kind of draws the most questions normally. And I never set out at the beginning to say, oh, I want to have a, a shocking scene. Um, as I was writing the book, um, I kind of wrote each part and then thought, okay, what happens next? So I was in the shower one day thinking, okay, what happens next? So I thought it would be an idea for the bad guy to try and recruit the good guy. That would be interesting. I wonder how the well, <laughs> the, I wonder how she would do that. Um, so I just started thinking about what 
what kind of things would be would be bad, what kind of things would have mm -hmm. an impact. And um, I'd read a lot of memoirs of people that had served. I think at that particular time it was mainly around the people that had been in the first Gulf War. And um, in some of those memoirs, you know, when people were preparing to go behind enemy lines, they would be saying, you know, I hope we don't get captured because if we do, certain things might happen to us. So it was interesting to see what, what real people in that situation mm. feared most. Mm. So um, that particular scene, it plays on a, a pretty kind of primeval fear, I think, and it's one right. that I have found is, is based on what real people in those dangerous situations worry about. There's a supplementary mm. question there. He got this idea in the shower, which part of himself was he washing? <laughs> <laughs> Lee, there's lots and lots of death and, and brutal battles in your books, but you don't tend to go into enormously long, drawn-out scenes of violence and, and cruelty. Is that a, a deliberate choice? Um, yeah, I think it is deliberate. You know, the actual violence that Reacher visits upon people is mm. usually um, spectacular but brief, because mm. I think that would be the plausible way he would do it. Um, you know, I think a person of his size and training doesn't get involved in drawn-out fights, it's mm. over pretty much instantaneously. And, um, you know, I don't have any theories, I don't plan, I don't um, have any ideology, I just do everything by instinct. And in Gone Tomorrow, there, there is a scene of, you know, spectacular um, unpleasantness. Absolutely. But it's done at a remove. Mm. Um, you know, it was months ago and it's captured on DVD. And that was purely instinctive, I thought. No, I don't want to do this live in real time. Um, I, want, I want it at one remove. And the tension involved of are they ready to watch the DVD yet is, is, is tremendous. It's almost more <coughs> tense than if you're seeing it in, in real time. Yeah, and, and the effect on, on Reacher and therefore the reader because it was a bit like what I said before about the reader reaction to the previous book. Mm. You know, because it's on DVD, there's nothing Reacher can do about it. He just has to sit there and take it. Yes. Um, you know, he can't react instantaneously. There's nothing he can do to save the person because it's already happened. Mm. And that, I think, um, makes, the, uh, makes it all the more tense and horrible. Plus, of course, it gives you the opportunity that the perpetrator, having done this, then looks up at, into the camera and smiles, which is, you know, deliciously yes. creepy. Extremely yeah. creepy. It, I can imagine that must be a bit of a nightmare for you. Something terrible being done to somebody else and no way of changing it. Yeah, I think that's perceptive, actually. I think that that, that would upset me more than anything else mm. is, um, is not being able to do anything about mm. it. Mm. Which actually was kind of the, the problem with the Granada thing. Um, you know, I intensely wanted to stop that from happening, but ultimately I couldn't. Mm. And, uh, you know, that rankles and festers. It's now... Uh, 14 years since I left and I imagined that uh, you know hopefully I would have another career that might be successful and as that new one got more successful the other one would fade away and the new one is turning out great and I'm loving every second of it but I'm still absolutely as angry about as the Granada thing as I, as I ever was. Wow. I'm just going to ask one more question before you get your chance. Would the two of you ever collaborate on a book? Absolutely like. not. <laughs> I mean, it would be uh, like nuclear fission if either one of us tried to collaborate because, um, you know, I am an absolute total control freak 
who, I didn't want to say who that. will not be told what to do, and he's even worse. Yeah. There's, a, there's, a bit, so there's, a, there's a bit in my book where it's, it's a first-person book, and one of the problems with first-person is if you're introducing the hero, it's really hard to say, hey, I'm really cool. So you need to find other ways of doing that. So at one point I introduced uh, the hero, David's service record, and there was a psychological evaluation in there. And that psychological evaluation is actually mine when I worked... Um, for my last company. Obviously, I changed it from Andrew to David, and there's a line in there that says, uh, it originally said, Andrew does not like being told what to do or how to do it. <laughs> so you can see what a good team player I am. Clearly, the family resemblance is huge, as well as the great height. Ladies and gentlemen, it's now your chance to ask the questions that you've been sitting there wishing that I would ask. So if we have the lights up and any hands... We can, there is a roving mic. Michael has a question. If the mic could come this way. Hi, Lee. Um, you've said that uh, you're going to keep Jack going until uh, book number 20 or 21, something like that. What are you going to do after Jack bites the dust? What am I going to do after Jack bites the dust? I am going to call the travel agent, get a ticket to the Caribbean, and go lie on the beach for the next 35 years reading everybody else's book. <laughs> You're not going to write anything else after Jack finishes there? No, I mean, that's, a, you know, that's another way of asking the question, do I want to write a standalone, do I want to write something else? And uh, I really don't. Um, you know, I think I am uh, the reacher guy. And, I, uh, and it, it always interests me how authors are intensely individualistic. I mean, we've just heard that, you know, we're not going to work together. We're absolute individ individuals. There are dozens of authors here who I know, and they're all entirely separate, entirely individuals. But the point is, together, we make up a kind of collective um, in the crime-writing field. We're, we're, we are separate, but we're also one large organism. And if somebody gets fed up with Reacher, it's not up to me to write their alternative entertainment. It's already being written by all these other people, and vice versa. If you get fed up with somebody else's book, come and read mine. So that I think we should all, to some extent, relieve ourselves of the burden of thinking that we, each one of us has to cover every base. You know, together we can cover every base. Thanks. One just in the row behind, two rows behind. Uh, Lee, do you ever worry about the fact that you may not be able to come up with a new plot for Jack Reacher to follow? Um, no, I absolutely don't. I mean, that's one of those... Uh, question that readers often ask, you know, where do you come up with ideas? Is it difficult? It's actually the complete reverse. Coming up with ideas is very easy um, because every single day there are, f you know, five ideas that you could easily exploit. The problem is really the reverse. Which idea are you going to back for your next year's project? You know, which one are you going to invest in? So um, I really, you know, I really don't worry about coming up with ideas. It's happened 14 times in a row and I, I trust that it'll happen as many times as I need it to. There's one behind and on the right. Hi, Lee. I'd, uh, first, I'd like to say thank you for giving me insomnia, because every time I pick up one of your books, I can't put it down. Um, how come the first book was done from a first-person perspective? I did this, I did that. Then the second book moved to Reacher said this, Reacher said that. Then a bit later on in the series, when we got used to that, you went back to I, and I noticed that the latest one is um, from the I perspective. Why, why do you change perspective? 
Um, well, first of all, thanks for the insomnia thing. It would be, it's much better causing it than curing it. <laughs> um, the first and third person thing is, uh, of the 13 books, four are in first person and nine are in third person. And the first one I felt, first person is so natural. It's a natural way to tell a story. It's how we all do it. Um, you know, we talk to each other, we say, I did this, I did that, I saw this. And uh, it's fast, it's immediate, it, it forms a very quick bond between the reader and the character. But then with the second book, a number of things happened. First of all, I was aware of, of um, the possibility of being typecast as a writer, just as much as you can be as an actor or anything else. And if you did a similar book second time and third time, uh, it would be very hard to, to break away from that later. So I thought, for the second book, I'll make it as different as possible from the first book in every way. So the second book was in third person. It was, it's much more of a straightforward linear thriller involving you know, government and all that sort of stuff. And I felt that between the two poles, I'd staked out some territory that I could then use in future years. Um, plus, first person is, is kind of exhausting in a, in a, in a tactical way, you know? It's, it, you're on this high wire all the time. You want to keep it interesting and vital, but you've got to stop yourself falling off into pomposity. And first person can be very pompous. Um, you know, like Andrew said, in third person, you absolutely can say, um, he's a handsome man, very attractive to women. You can say that. You cannot say that in first person. You can't say, hey, I'm an attractive man. <laughs> Women like me. You just you can't can, say it. You can have that scene of him shaving, looking in the bathroom mirror. <laughs> no, no. It just can't be done. And so third person is more convenient for that kind of thing. Also for a, um, for a thriller plot, third person is a lot more useful because most thriller plots require two points of view. You know, the good guys are doing this, the bad guys are doing that, and there's an implied promise that those two tracks are going to collide at the end of the book, and you can only do that in third person. So the plot limits you a little bit, and I would say the four to nine ratio is about representative of available plots between first and third person. There's a, there's a question over there on the left-hand side... Um, how long does it take you to write each book? How many drafts do you do? How, many, how long does it take and how many drafts do I do? Well, I, I can answer that question precisely because for the last several books I've been keeping a diary. Um, partly because, you know, out of a completely unworthy um, uh, ongoing dispute between me and my wife about how hard I work, so I've been <laughs> making a note of it every day. <laughs> and uh, this book, Gone Tomorrow, took 81 days to write. And I do one, one draft and I mail it in. Because my method is to, uh, in the morning, I read what I did yesterday and you know, kind of fix it and then carry on. And then the, the same thing the next day. So it's like two steps forward, one step back every day. And so actually, to say one draft is not quite right. Because by the time I finish the book, I've probably been through it 80 times. But in, I don't, I'm not one of those writers that writes it out and then rewrites it. Uh, you know, it's taken care of as it goes along. So I, 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 uh, I reach the last full stop and then email it in. And um, occasionally, if an editor has a problem with it, I'll change something. So technically, there would be a second draft. But from my point of view, I only do one draft. Another question in the same row. I'm sure I've read somewhere that there's going to be a film adaptation 
of the Ricci novels. Is this true? And if so, who would play Jack Ricci? Oh, well, um, you know, talking about what is true in relation to movies is, is a movable feast. Um, you know, Paramount owns the project and they are actively developing it. They have a script, they have the money, uh, they have committed. It reached a technical point in terms of the contract where just two weeks ago, actually, they either had to give it up or pay a substantial payment in order to keep on with it. And they paid a substantial payment, which in the current climate means that they probably are going to make it, otherwise they'd have saved the money. Um, so they're going ahead with it, and casting isn't, of is, of course, the big problem, um, because there are just no actors suitable to play Reacher physically. Um, you know, actors in general are very small. And uh, so what we've got to do is find one that, is, um, that can at least represent the type of character Reach is supposed to be. Uh, plus, they've got to have enough star power to actually open a movie. And uh, that's the problem. At the moment, they're talking to Hugh Jackman about doing it, which would be, you know, people say to me, who, sh who would play Reacher? And, you know, that's dependent on the deal, frankly, not that I want to be too cynical about it, but this particular deal is if it actually gets made and shown, it's quite lucrative for me. So I'm saying anybody can play it. Katie Holmes can play it. <laughs> Angelina Jolie can play it. There's a, there's a question here at the, at the front on the right. Would I be right in saying that I don't have to buy book one, I can buy, say, book 20 or 10? Or would you say to me, I have to read each one? No, the question is, is it, is it necessary to read them in order? And uh, absolutely not. They all stand alone. You can start any place. And um, I'm contractually obliged by my publisher to say the best place to start is the current hardcover. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, that was partly a... A, a deliberate decision because it's very frustrating if somebody hears about the series but you have to start with book one suppose the story is out of stock of book one then the person forgets all about it and the opportunity goes away so you can start anywhere but that's also partly because I, I really don't like as a reader the self-referential nature of series that refer backward to different books um, I just think it's silly frankly so they all stand alone you don't have to know anything about any of the other books to enjoy any one of them would you like Jack to go and sort out the people at Granada? <laughs> <laughs> well, funny you should say that, actually, because, it, you know, metaphorically, Jack already has, because uh, for the first at least nine books, the bad guys were all uh, named after and physically modelled after uh, <laughs> those people. Um, you know, just astonishing degrees of detail, actually. One of them... Uh, there's a woman bad guy in one of the early books who is uh, absolutely modelled and named after uh, one particular woman manager I didn't like very much. Mo physically modelled exactly like her. The, the thinning hair, the crooked teeth, everything. <laughs> and uh, in a way it's a kind of taunt or a dare because the thing that writers have in their favour is what technically we call the small dick defence, which means that you can actually use these people <laughs> as bad guys. And uh, they're not going to sue you because what would they do in that case? They'd have to go to the courtroom, come up on the stand and say, you know that lying, backstabbing weasel on page 100? That's me. 
<laughs> Over there, yes. Uh, thanks. This is one for Andrew, so you don't go to sleep up there. Uh, Lee's books tend to be set around America. Are your books going to be the same or set in England? Well, uh, it's a good question. The first one is set in New York. The second one is set in Chicago. But um, in terms of the way the series has been designed, the, um, the hero's job means that I can put him anywhere in the world that I want. So... Um, I haven't got plans for exactly where he's going to be, but all I know is that over the years he is going to move around and he's going to show up in all, all different uh, parts of the world. Okay, so we've got time for one more question. That hand there was the quickest. This is for Lee. Um, I read all your books and then my friend said, when you get around to reading them again, read them all in order. I was glad I did because eventually I found Jack did have some white boxes. I was quite concerned about that, because um, he's a devil for throwing his clothes away, isn't he? Uh, what's the title of your next book, and when can we expect it? Uh, the title of the next book is 61 Hours, and uh, that's because the action from the very first line to the last line takes 61 hours to unravel. And you can expect it, I think, uh, either early April or, or maybe the very end of March next year. Um, and it's a book that was partly a a reaction to what I've done before, because I don't plan, I don't outline, to paraphrase Yogi Berra, the uh, Yankees uh, baseball player, I can't write and think at the same time. <laughs> and so I just do it all by instinct. And I always start writing every year in September. And I'm usually in New York, sometimes in the south of France, and both places are very hot. And so all these books come out hot. Uh, you know, Gone Tomorrow, the weather is hot. Uh, right there on the second page, it says something like, uh, you know, it was September, it, it was still as hot as summer, and 10 degrees hotter down in the subway. And I thought, well, you know, that's getting predictable. Every book is warm. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to turn the tables. 61 hours is going to be a very cold book. So it's, it's set in South Dakota in the middle of the winter, where it is unbelievably cold. And there's a snow, snowy road, uh, a howling snowstorm, a bus is driving along the road, it skids and crashes into a ditch. And on the bus are 20 senior citizens on a cultural tour. They've just been at the Dakota Land Museum, they're heading for Mount Rushmore, and now they're wrecked in a ditch, helpless, except they picked up a hitchhiker at the last stop. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting three rows behind any, anybody else is this scruffy, huge individual who... Um, who carries no bag, and therefore he's stranded in a snowstorm with no coat, no hat, and no gloves. And uh, that's how it starts out. It ends up involving a, an underground facility and 40 tons of methamphetamine. <laughs> well, Lee has always been brilliant at the cliffhangers, and that is one <laughs> of the best cliffhangers I've ever heard. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please thank these two extraordinary brothers, Andrew Grant and Lee Child. Thank you for listening to The Hiff Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com. <laughs>